Good morning. I'll be reading from John 4, 27 to 42. Just then, Jesus' disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, the disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say, Four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more believers, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have seen and heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Thank you, Linda. Good morning. I'm not sure if your kitchen is like mine, but there's a pantry in my kitchen. On the top shelf of this pantry is some food that my boys don't know about. Uh, it's, uh, it's beyond their sight. I mean, they can, see, they can see at their eye level, you know, the rice cakes, the fruit and the vegetables. We put those at their eye levels, absolutely. There is no shortage of seeing carrots and apples for them. But when they are put to bed and are sleeping and are upstairs, the sound of chip bags opening, candy, chocolate, pop, right? That's, that, that takes place more often than it should in, in my house. <laughs> um, but I make sure it's a food that they do not know about because if my three- and five-year-old boys got access to the chips or the candy, they would not eat dinner or fruits or vegetables ever, right? And so um, there's just sort of this... You know, some of you are, are, for Lent, by the way, not eating any of this stuff as we speak and are salivating with my introduction. And I apologize. But I want to say from the get-go something that Jesus is saying in verses 32, 33, 34 in this passage. He's talking um, to these disciples who have come back from town. And they went to town to buy food. And they come back with the food, and they're offering it to Jesus. Eat it. And he's like, I have food you don't know about. What? What's this food you, we don't know about? Have you been, like, stashing sandwiches in your cloak? Like, how do you do that? Who's come and brought you food? We went all the way to town to get you food, and you've already had this food that we don't know about. Well, he makes it really, really clear in verse 34 what he's talking about. I'm going to tell it to you right now because the whole morning is built around this verse. Jesus said to them, my food 
is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus is saying that there's a food far greater, there's a food that's far better, far more satisfying than what you're talking about. We've seen this happen a number of times because the disciples are thinking food. They're thinking food, literal food. We've seen this. This is the fourth time in John's gospel this has happened. It's kind of his, his comedy, I think. Like in, it, we see Jesus talking with some people, with some, some Pharisees, and, and he says to them, destroy the, temple and, destroy the temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. And they say to him, how is this possible that that you could do that it's taken us 46 years to build this temple and we're still working on it and 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 then this man named nicodemus comes to jesus at night and jesus says you want eternal life you must be born again nicodemus and nicodemus is like thinking physically okay how does that work how do i get reborn that's complicated i'm I'm not understanding that he's thinking that one through just does not get it well we've just seen last week in part one of our of looking at this amazing story of a woman at a well in Samaria that Jesus encounters. Last week we saw him sitting at this well, and this woman comes to draw water, and he says, I can give you living water. I can give you the kind of water that will satisfy completely and forever. And she says, can I have this water? Because then I won't have to keep coming back to this well. Right? She's just... Do you think that that water sounds great, how it satisfies all the time? I'm not sure, but I wouldn't have to keep coming back to the well for water if your water's always satisfied, right? So she's just kind of missing it. And now, well, Jesus' disciples come back from town and say, where's this food that we don't know about? Where have you been stashing it? Well, it's just looking at eye level, right? And you don't know, like my boys, about the food, the better food, that is above. <laughs> Horrible illustration. I know. That's a stretch. That's, preachers have to do that from time to time. But I sure do love my junk food. Anyways, um, see, what these people that Jesus has counter, encountered, what they, can't, they can see a temple made of bricks. They can see that. Or, that or, or a birth with blood and pain or water from a well. But they don't get a man who is a temple. They don't understand a birth by the Spirit and water that satisfies forever or about a far greater food that is to do the will of God. It's the very mission of Jesus. That's his food. And that's far beyond what they've been able to see until now. Some people today, by the way, this this is all about missions this morning, the mission of God. The mission that Jesus was on is actually a mission he entrusts to us. It's all about mission. It's all about the great commission. It's all about going and making disciples, baptizing them and teaching them everything that Jesus commanded. But see, some people today at first don't get missions because they don't see the way of the world that Jesus is talking about. They don't see the world the way Jesus does. See, missions assumes a whole new way of looking at the world. And in this text, we see nourishment from eating versus nourishment from loving and living out mission. We see this in Jesus. See, Jesus, as he pours himself out on mission, God actually pours back into him. And the same is true for us. 
So here's a question as we get going this morning. If you want to see how much culture shapes and controls you, we talk about this quite often around here, the culture outside of the church, the culture around us, the pervasive culture of the day. If you want to see if it influences you more than Jesus and the mission of Jesus, here's a question that might help. If you want to see how much culture shapes and controls you, simply ask how great is your burden for missions? You want to see if you're more influenced by the culture than the mission of Jesus. Ask this question, how great is your burden for missions? In this moment, you might feel a little bit convicted. I, I like to remind you of this often. I've been, work, I've been sitting in this for like two weeks now as I've been studying. You're only five minutes in, okay? You're feeling a prick of conviction. This has been on my shoulders a couple weeks. It's good. It's good. We all need to hear it. See, the only way to have a burden for missions is to be more influenced by Jesus than by North American culture, to see the world the way Jesus sees it. In fact, you'll never have a heart for missions if you don't see the world the way Jesus sees it. And Jesus is showing us that view. We get an amazing glimpse of that view. His interaction with a woman at a well in Samaria gives us this picture of that view that he has for all of life. It's a completely different outlook, or we could call it a worldview. And Jesus wants to shape our vision of mission this morning through this text. Here's the two ways in which I see him doing that in the text. First, disciples. Disciples are committed followers of Jesus Christ. They follow after Jesus. They know him. They want to be like him. Disciples relinquish the way of the world for the way of Jesus. Disciples relinquish the ways of the world for the way of Jesus. We'll look at that first. Secondly, disciples feast on the mission of Jesus. We're talking about real food of sustenance. And disciples of Jesus feast on the mission of Jesus. So let's pray together and then let's, let's walk through this amazing text together. Lord God, thank you so much for your word. Lord, if I were thinking on my own about how to share Jesus with others, this would not be my way, for I would contrive much easier things, call people to far less, than this, but Lord, we don't give ourselves to the best ideas of the day. We give ourselves to the everlasting, uh, inerrant word of God, and we trust it. So Lord, thank you that you've given us this picture of really holistic mission. God, I pray that um, my heart in preaching this morning is not to, to burden anyone but to enliven and give a a vision and a picture that you bring us of the joy that can be found, the deep satisfaction that can be found in living this way in light of the gospel. So, Lord, I pray that for us, that we would catch that vision, find our joy and satisfaction in living to this end that we will discover together this morning. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Disciples of Jesus relinquish the ways of the world for the way of Jesus. That sounds so easy and clear-cut and cut and dry, right? It just sounds like you just get rid of that and you start to live like this. 
And then some Christians come along and be like, why are you still living like that? Live like this. And you're like, I'm trying. It's hard. There's something in the very first verse we're looking at this morning that gives us a little bit of solace, that there's, there's sanctification that needs to happen in our lives. This is a, a, a slowly becoming more and more like Jesus, more and more um, made into his image and pursuing holiness and less and less like the world. And so this is, this is, we're working towards that, and so there's no preaching of perfection here. So it's interesting. What's happened, if I look at the last couple of verses of what we looked at last week, is this woman concludes after interaction with Jesus, I know that the Messiah is coming, and he's going to make everything clear. And Jesus looks back at her and says, I who have been talking with you, who am standing right in front of you, am he. I am the Messiah, and right then the disciples return. This is where we pick it up in verse 27. They come back, and they marvel that he was talking with a woman. What's so amazing, and we looked at this last week, is he's not simply just talking with a woman, which culturally, many Jews would not even be seen in public talking with their wife. Let alone talking with a woman. It's only going to make people assume something's going on. Jesus is in Samaria, a place where, where Jews looked down upon these people, would go around this region oftentimes, and if they went through it, certainly wouldn't eat food from there, but Jesus' disciples are going that far. They're getting food from a town in Samaria. But they come back, and what, what just stumps them and floors them, and then what they marvel at is that he's talking with a Samaritan woman. They marvel at this. And interestingly, though, it's one of the rare times in Scripture where the disciples don't put their foot in their mouths in this kind of instance. It says, but no one said, what do you seek to the woman? Or, why are you talking with her? You can gather from that if they were to say to her, what do you seek from him? What do you seek from our rabbi? Well, they would be guilty of the same thing they think Jesus shouldn't be doing, which is talking with a woman. So they don't do that. And they probably have just learned a thing or two like from putting their foot in their mouths. So they'll do it again, that Jesus always corrects them and shows them, you guys are so foolish and need a ton of work, literally more years and the Holy Spirit to get you anywhere. And so, right, and so they just kind of just bite their tongues with him because they're like, he's just going to, you know, whatever, show us our, the error of our ways. So for whatever reason, they just bite their tongues in that moment. And yet we see that they're discovering, they're shocked, they're needing to learn more of what the mission of Jesus truly is. And so we're all there. We're all trying to discover. We're all a little shocked and maybe in awe of the mission that Jesus truly has for us all. Just like the disciples. But may we find what he wants us to discover in this. We're going di- to look at two words, really, left and went in verse 28, in discovering that we are to relinquish the ways of the world for the way of Jesus. Left and went. So the woman left her water jar and went into town. Start by reading 2 Corinthians 5.17, which says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. She has left her old way for the old has gone. We're watching that happen right in front of our eyes. With this story, she has left her water jar. What's so significant about that and why the gospel writer puts that in is because Jesus has just been talking to her at a well where she has gone to gather water, material, physical water. She's come for that, but she's encountered Jesus. He's offered her living water. And what happens in this scene? She leaves her water jar and goes into town. And we, we discover to tell them about Jesus. This is such a picture of leaving the old way of life. The old has gone. She never used the water jar from what we can see to gather water. She went there for that purpose, but she left 
with living water. She has left her old way. The old has gone. This woman simply does not leave her water jar. She leaves her old way of life. She has left her old way of life and is embracing the way of Christ. Not only that, she left the water jar and went into town for the new has come. Verse 28, the woman left her water jar and went into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Again, about the old has gone and the new has come, putting off the old, putting on the new. We see that in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. That's precisely what she does. What I find so incredible about this is that this woman has been avoiding people and is now going to people she has left an old way and is embracing a new way with going and this new that has come we see really three wonderful beautiful things taking place she confesses christ she has a change in values and she has a concern for the lost firstly she confesses christ matthew 10 verse 32 puts it this way Jesus said, everyone who acknowledges me before men, everyone who acknowledges me before men, who, who, who speaks of me, acknowledges me in front of other people, to other people, I will also acknowledge before the Father, my Father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, before others, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Romans 10 verse 9 puts it this way. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. There is both a belief and a confession. And and she makes it. She leaves her time with Jesus and goes and tells others about him in such a way that they're actually all drawn to him. We see at the end of this passage, they all come back believing already in who he is. She proclaimed that the Messiah had arrived. And there's a change in her values. Now she's found the water that satisfies the soul. She abandons her water jar. I wonder for us, when we talk about change in values, is it time for some of us to put down that old water jar? We may have encountered Jesus, we may have met him at the well in one sense and been offered this living water, but as we engage him and then we engage people from there, is the water jar still in our hand? We're kind of taking it with us. For it's supposed to say the old has passed away and the new has come. Right? We leave this old way for a new way. Our old values change into new values. They're different. But are we kind of lugging the jar around with us and being like, ah, oh. Some of these values I I still find pretty great. They're still what I like, what I do value. Is there a change in your life? Are you different now than you were when you first believed? Are you partially transformed? Are you being transformed? Are you being changed? Is it time to leave the water jars of old desires and values behind? Thirdly, She has a concern for the lost. My question for this is why? I mean, she's just encountered Jesus. She's just encountered him. 
Wouldn't you want to just stay there, just sit there, just be around him, hear him say some more stuff? Like, I, I, I wouldn't be going anywhere very quickly, but she goes. Her impulse is to go, and like the disciples come, and she leaves. It's that quick. She's had an exchange. She's had a conversation with Jesus, and she's already going into town. Why? Why such a drastic change in this woman's life? Well, there's only one reason. Because the love of the Lord Jesus has already been sprung up within her. It's springing up. This living water is springing up within her. He had loved her, a sinful, outcast, foreign woman, and now she was to love others as he had loved her. This love was different than the broken forms of love that she had experienced previously. It was divine love that changed her. See, what's so amazing about this is that this is a woman who avoided everyone. I mean, the time to go to the well was just after sunrise when it was still cool, but there was some light. And if you needed to go twice, you would go just before the sun set because it would be cooling down at the end of the day. But this woman, as we discovered last week, shows up at noon in the blazing sun when nobody will be there. She's avoiding everybody, but she has encountered Christ. And because she has encountered Christ, the people she was once avoiding, she is now going to. What's so interesting about this is that she doesn't just go to town and find people. It says in the original language that she found the men. This is a woman who was married five times, was living with a six, had these broken forms of love and and probably sexuality and all of these things, right? We can assume some of this from that kind of a track record and that she was viewed as an outcast in all of this. And yet... This woman goes and seeks out. At that time, a lot of men would gather in the town at a certain particular place, sometimes at the gates of the city. They would gather, be together. These are the people that she sought out. Who she had been avoiding earlier that day, she is seeking out to share Jesus with. She has a concern for others. She had to share Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.14 puts it this way, For the love of Christ controls us, or the love of Christ compels us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for for their sake died and was raised. So we're compelled to proclaim Jesus, just as this woman is. They conclude in verse 42, It is no longer because of what you said, they said to the woman, that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. See, they came to know Jesus personally, these, these people that she went to. She told them about Jesus. She brought them to Jesus. And then they encountered Jesus for themselves, this deep, personal relationship with Jesus of knowing, loving, obeying, and telling others about him. And on and on it goes. Job, in Job 42, he put it this way, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. They encountered Jesus, and they were never the same. Some of the old values of their old way of life still linger, still draw them, still lure them? Yes. But had there been a shift in their nature and who they were in their values? Yes. So I ask again, have you left your water jar, former ways, values, and taken up the way of Jesus? We've seen it 
worked out in this woman in these ways. Confession of faith, change in values, genuine care and concern for the lost. Right? It's obeying his commands, seeking Jesus, walking with Jesus, having relationship with him. Helping others encounter Jesus personally. Well, that leads us to our second point, the main emphasis this morning, is that disciples feast on the mission of Jesus. So this woman goes off into town, and now Jesus has some time with the disciples. And we pick it up in verse 32, where Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. It's echoing Deuteronomy 8.3. Listen to this, where God humbled, God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What does man truly live on? Every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord, God's will. So Jesus goes out into the wilderness and is tempted there. And in Matthew 4, 4 and Luke 4, 4, we see this. Jesus actually quotes this passage of Scripture Um, As he is being tempted, he replies scripture and says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's what we truly live on. If you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, what you truly live on, what your true sustenance is, is every word that God gives. The word of God, the scriptures, the Bible... And the call for the believer, the mission of Jesus. See, with the cross in view, Jesus could declare, John 17, 14, I glorified you on earth, Jesus said to the Father, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Jesus had work to do on earth, and he says in John 17, 4, I accomplished the work you gave me to do. And then look at what Jesus says in John chapter 20, verse 21. Jesus commissions his disciples the exact same way and says, Jesus said, it said Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, as he sent me to do the will of the Father, to hang on the very words of God, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. I'm sending you out the same way, to do the things that I did, to go about life the same way I go about it, to not just see physical food as sustenance, but to see the spiritual food that truly satisfies and is your great joy. To not just seek water materially, but to know that that's just a pointer, all the waters in the earth, just a pointer to the living water that Jesus gives. And that's the message that we get to share with others. That's the true mission. And Jesus says, just as I have done, I'm sending you out to do the same, to live that way too. This is incredible to me. Jesus puts it again. I'll read it again. Verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Verse 35, he goes on to say this. Do you not say there are yet four months? Then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. I'll paraphrase that. Jesus says, you think that a gap between sowing and reaping must exist. But I'm telling you that I've just sown the seed and the harvest is already happening. Here's what Jesus is saying. While you were in town, I sat with a woman at a well, shared with her about living water that's eternal. And she believed and is already going to tell other people. Sowing and reaping are happening together, right? You're, you're going to think regular, this linear term. You're going to think harvest. You're going to think you, you plant the seeds, you wait a time, you come back and you reap a harvest. But I'm, again, talking about something different. With souls, with the spiritual, what the, it, with the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, what's taking place here is sowing and reaping together constantly. Now, this is new. This is different. And here's how it works itself out. And we're going to talk about the four ways it works itself out briefly. Right? 
Here we go. Local, it's global, it's eternal, and it's communal. We see that from the passage, this mission of Jesus, this mission that we are on together is local, it's global, it's eternal, and it's communal. First, it's local. This woman goes into town to tell those she had been avoiding about Jesus. In her excitement and amazement about Jesus, others were drawn to him as well. What's so incredible about this is that moments earlier she was trapped in a life of immorality and was a social outcast. She was scraping by on a daily existence of avoiding people. And now she is the first evangelist to the Samaritan people. Is that not the heart of the gospel? Is that just such a beautiful picture of the gospel? Jesus goes into Samaria, a place many Jews would not go. So Samaritans already from the get-go are outsiders. Next, culturally, we need to understand that that going to a woman was significant and abnormal. Thirdly, he went to the most outcast woman of the area, the only woman who went to the well at the middle of the day because that's when she could avoid everybody. That's who Jesus goes to, offers eternal life to, and she becomes the first evangelist to her own people. Can I get an amen for that? So the way that that works itself out is this, that who here is not equipped? Who here is not worthy Who here does not have a capacity to do so? Who here is not good enough for that endeavor? Well, the answer in one form is that, well, none of us are worthy, and yet God, by his grace, extends it to all, and we're all equipped for that work. That's the beauty of it. That's what's so amazing, is that in many ways she was ill-equipped. She had only had one conversation with Jesus, and yet we see that living water is welling up within her. And we see her go and sharing. She's not going to have every answer to every doctrine, is she? She's had one conversation with Jesus. She's a new believer. But there she goes, and people are mesmerized. Why? Because this is someone who had been avoiding them, and now she's walking to them, beaming and sharing that she has found the Messiah, and this is a gift to share with all. And they are blown away. There's another piece to this local mission that's really interesting, is that I would have a different approach than she would. I don't know about you, but she goes into town and she says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. I would never use that line. And if somebody came to me and used that line, come see a man who who knows everything about me, everything I ever did. I'd be like, stay away. Where's this guy? I want to stay away from this guy. I don't want to come across a man who knows every single thing about me. I will feel embarrassed. I will feel shame. He's going to see all the worst thoughts that I have. Why on earth would I want to see a guy who knows everything that I've ever did, everything you've ever did? But what's so amazing is that this is really effective for her because they all knew what she had did, done. They all knew why she was an outcast. They had the reasons. They didn't like to be around her. They avoided her and she avoided them. And yet what's so profound is they knew what was going on in her life, and she's overjoyed that the Messiah had come and knew everything about her and had offered her life. It's the gospel. My encouragement to you is this. It's, it's 1 Peter 3. It's Peter's encouragement. 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. What I want you to hear from that is be prepared with testimony about what Jesus has done in you. 
See, what keeps many of us away from sharing Jesus with people is that, well, if they ask that question, I don't think I know enough about it, so I'm not going to bring up the subject. If they ask this question, well, I don't know everything about that, so I, how could I share? But Peter's saying, always be prepared to give a defense for the hope that's in you. I mean, this woman would have been beaming. This woman was changed. This woman had a story to tell about how she had encountered the Messiah and would never be the same. And so she came armed with that and very little else. And it blew them away. It's incredible. The disciples had just been to town to buy lunch, not thinking much of it. They had just been where she was going and probably didn't say anything about Jesus to the people there. The disciples come back. This woman who just encountered Jesus goes to that same town where the disciples just were and is the one to share Jesus. She has gone to the very same town and is sowing and is reaping a harvest. They just bought lunch in that town, yet it was a field white for harvest. And I wonder if we're there sometimes. I mean, right now, some of you are just thinking lunch. What are we having at the restaurant for lunch? The disciples were just in town, and they were just getting lunch, and their eyes weren't looking for anything but lunch. And off they go. The woman comes, is thinking spiritual food, has the greatest sustenance to give, and she shares it. And those same people that the disciples walked by believe that's something for us to hear. Every day is a new day to share Jesus. Every conversation is an opportunity to share Jesus. Is your context a field white for harvest? And are you just, or are you just thinking about lunch? I confess that. Oh man, go to the grocery store. I just want to get my stuff, get out. I talked about this last week. Pick up a phone if there's a moment of downtime and I'll scroll it while in public. Heaven forbid I talk to a stranger, right? It's just challenging. It's the day we live in, right? We, we, we work this way. I come and work in a church and we'll get to that in a little bit. Right? And so I work around Christians all the time. And so, but do I foster relationships with my neighbors? All this sort of stuff. Are we actually looking for opportunities to connect with people and encourage them? My aim this morning is not to be heavy-handed at all, not to make anybody feel guilty at all, but come alive to the mission of Jesus, to come alive to the mission of the Christians, to come alive to what disciples truly do. Our eyes are not just looking at this. We're looking to the upper shelf where the really good stuff is. We're noticing it and we're knowing it's there. And so our eyes are always there. And so we're looking at opportunities and being like, I'm not just looking here. I'm looking here. My mission is different. I'm not just going to the grocery store to pick up two items because we forgot them yesterday. To, I have to get more so I'm just quickly racing for a couple more items that are out there. I have eyes that are looking higher than that. I want to see the opportunities that Jesus might have for me. Right? Not only is this a local mission, it's a global mission. Jesus went to Samaria and revealed his messiahship, his lordship. He revealed that he is the savior of the world. And this is part of what the, um, the disciples marveled at. This, is, this was a message not just for their own people. This was a global message. The gospel is for the whole world to hear. If you have a Bible with you, why don't you turn it to Acts chapter 10. Um, if you don't have a Bible, I encourage you bring one when you can. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we've got some for you at the Welcome Center there. We're always happy to give out a Bible. There's nothing we like to give out more than that. 
In Acts chapter 10, there's something really fascinating happening. Peter's one of the guys who came into Samaria, came to see Jesus talking to this woman in Samaria and is blown away. Well, all the way after this, I mean, the church has been started. The Holy Spirit has been gifted to these people and thousands of people are coming to Christ. And yet this scenario happens in Acts chapter 10. And what's happening here is that Peter, it's interesting, while they're making a meal, while they're preparing a meal, Peter goes upstairs to the roof of the house and spends some time praying. And there he comes into some sort of trance. He has a vision. And in essence, what takes place is that Jesus says to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he's talking about the context for Peter that he sees is talking about food that he would deem unclean. And he said, I've never eaten food like that. I never will. Why would I do that? And Jesus responds, what God has made clean, do not call common. Acts chapter 10, verse 15. But what we see is that at the same time, or previously, Cornelius, this Gentile man, has had an encounter with Jesus and and is called to, to go and fetch this man named Peter. So he sends men to bring Peter. And so when Peter comes out of this trance, this vision, men show up from Cornelius' house and say, come. Well, what's so interesting about this is it's not just about food. It's about souls. It's not just about common meat or clean or unclean meat. It's about people. And what Peter's discovering here is that he's meant to go to this Gentile man's house and share the gospel. And Cornelius says, I've been told you have a message to share. You're supposed to share with me about Jesus. Peter's like, this, it seemed odd to him. But there he goes. He shares Jesus at this Gentile man's house. And wouldn't you know, the household come to faith. The Holy Spirit is evident in their lives. They ask to be baptized. And Peter's like, this is crazy. I wasn't expecting any of this, but I'm seeing the Holy Spirit manifested and, 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 and faith manifested in the lives of the people right in front of me. So how can I not baptize them? So off they go and they baptize these believers. Well, in Acts chapter 10, I'm talking fast because there's such a long story here. But they, they go back and all the apostles, all the leaders of the church get together in Jerusalem and they're talking about this issue. And they're like, circumcise those people. And he's like, no, wait, but if we see, like, there's this whole talk about, well, they already know, they already believe, they've been, that, that there's the mark of the Holy Spirit in their lives, like, all this is happening, the mark of baptism has taken place, they don't need to be, and they have this whole conversation, well, in Acts chapter 11, verse 18, this is what they summarize, they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life, they're blown away, and they're praising God, this is not just for us, this is for the whole world, this is for all to know, we see Jesus do it when he shows up to the Samaritan woman at the well, we see Peter do it when he obeys what Jesus tells him in going to Cornelius' house, and we see in the ministry of the apostle Paul, the greatest missionary to the world, that he he goes out from Jerusalem and proclaims the gospel and churches flourish everywhere. This is a great call, this passage, to global missions because we have a global God and the gospel is for the ends of the earth. As you can see, as I hope you can see, we're all called to be missionaries. Every single one of us, either far away or in neighborhoods, in our neighborhoods, in our office buildings and communities, Every one of us also is called to global missions. We're called either to go or to send. We're all called to be missionaries. We're all called to be global missionaries, either going physically ourselves across the world to unreached people to proclaim the name of Jesus or to send them there. But in one way, shape, or form, all disciples of Jesus are missionaries in their sphere of influence and are missionaries to the ends of the earth because we partner with those who go. I'm so thankful that we are a part of a church where we have sent out multiple missionaries in the last few years. I know many of you 
personally uh, help fund that mission, that we as a church get behind them and fund that mission together. I think it's time, though, when I preach a passage like this, to call more global missionaries. People are getting nervous. Oh, no. Right? There's this remote country that seems so unlivable that I felt called to for so long. Is the preacher really bringing up global missions again? I don't want to live there. I don't want to go there. Do they have iPads there? Do they have Wi-Fi there? I'm not sure that they do. How will I survive? Right? There's a call for us as Christians to go to the ends of the earth and proclaim Jesus. It's a global mission. Would you go? I'm asking you to leave our church. Because there are a lot of cities in the world that have far less churches than Chilliwack. There are, there are a number of cities in the world that don't have access to Bibles and the proclamation of the gospel like Chilliwack does. So get out of here. If the Lord is calling you there, pray that you would be open to that. Thirdly, we see this call as eternal. Look at verse 35. Look, I tell you, Jesus says, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. Jesus was ushering in an age that we continue to be in, an age when sowing and reaping coincide. Jesus makes it clear that what he's referring to is the salvation of souls, that people would come to Christ, that they would hear the gospel, because in hearing and receiving and confessing, believing the gospel, that is where eternal life is given. And so that is what is at stake, making Jesus known, sharing the gospel. These have eternal ramifications. And he is showing that. And he's also revealing that there is much joy in seeing others come to faith. Here's a question that might arise from this. What if we see very little fruit? And what if it appears like very little comes of our efforts? Maybe you are trying to be faithful. You are sharing Jesus with people. And you're like, man, people will mock me. They ridicule me. They, they just think it's fine for me, but they don't think it applies to them. I'm just getting, I feel like I'm getting nowhere. I'm praying for people. I don't see any change in their lives. Lord, what's going on? What Jesus wants us to see here about um, this fruit being gathered up for eternal life is that your prayers, your conversations, your longings for people to come to faith, your the d- displaying Christ to people, all of it, those have eternal rewards. Find joy in that. Not simply when someone comes to faith, although angels rejoice, all of heaven rejoices, and we do too when that takes place, and yet find joy in just being about the mission of Jesus, tough and toiling as it may be. Just find joy in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. We can look to the future, look to eternity, and see the harvest and rejoice. Even in the thick of it, even when it doesn't seem like your conversations are doing anything, Jesus says, you're gathering up fruit for eternal life. Lastly, it's communal. 37, for the saying holds true, one sows and other reaps. 
I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Jesus is referring to John the Baptist and the prophets, those who came before. You're just entering into the labor of all those who have sown, right? All the prophets, all the Old Testament writers, all those who were faithful. Now the disciples get to come along and start to reap this harvest that had been prepared. I mean, this continues to happen. We're in a sowing and reaping time where both coincide. There's seeds planted. Maybe just a few, and not much seems to happen for a while, but then someone else comes along and plants more, and and watering, and weather, and seasons change, and time happens, and prayer happens, all these things happen, and there is a harvest to gain, and we see that it's actually a communal joint effort. Typically, a farmer sows and then comes along later and reaps. With the kingdom and mission of God, that's not always the case. This is shared. We participate together. It's a unique harvest time. Some mission fields are mainly fields of sowing with very little reaping. And some, the harvest just seem, or the, the fields just seem white for harvest, meaning there are people just ready to come to faith. We might put Canada, the U.S., Thailand, or Turkey in this category, I mean, many, many others, of mainly sowing, and the reaping of the harvest seems, like, difficult, and, and one at a time, and a lot of toil. That very much feels maybe like the sowing and reaping here. Places like Korea and China just would be a couple examples on the other end of the spectrum, fields white for harvest. In the 1940s, um, Western Christian missionaries were, were removed out of China. They could not stay at that point in time. And at that time, they believed there were about a million Christians in China. In the 1940s, today, there are believed to be around 150 million Christians in China. So would you say in the last 60 years, the field has been white for harvest there? It's incredible. Places like, uh, nations like South Korea are sending missionaries globally. In, in the last hundred years, so many people have come to faith there. They are one of the great missionary senders. It's incredible what's happening in these countries. And yet some, some sow, some reap. There's seasons of real sowing. There's seasons of real reaping. And it all takes place and coincides at the same time. So that is what Jesus is calling us to. That is the mission. That's our mission as disciples in Jesus, of Jesus, and that's the mission we're on together as a church. I promise you. That's what we long for, to be on that kind of mission together. And we are so much more effective together, sowing and reaping side by side, bringing prayer requests, praying for them together, praying for people that are in our lives, equipping each other to love well and be gracious and kind and use speech that's compelling and draw people in, right? Not in a manipulative way, but in a way that truly comes alongside, right? C.S. Lewis said, I've never met a mere mortal. Well, why did he say that? He said, I've never met a mere mortal because everyone's an image bearer of God. See, around us are only people who need to to come to full grips with who they are. They were created by God, and they will find their deepest satisfaction and joy in knowing him. They're not a project to us. People who don't know Jesus aren't a project to us. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, I'm just so thankful you're here. We want to get to know you and have relationship with you and point you to Jesus just like we do with everyone else. Do it lovingly and winsomely. Be a community that authentically loves as Jesus loves. So here's the question that I conclude with. What hinders the mission? This is the mission of Jesus. This was his mission, and he commissioned it to us. Do as I've done. What hinders the mission? Tom Rayner with Lifeway Research 
just listed the 14 ma- main reasons Christians do not evangelize. He did a study, he did a poll, he took all the information back. Here's the 14 reasons Christians do not evangelize. Are you ready? First, Christians have no sense of urgency to reach the lost. Don't see people as image bearers of God needing to hear the gospel, needing to come to faith that there's an urgency to that. It's casual. Secondly, many Christians and church members do not befriend and spend time with lost persons. Many Christians and church members do not befriend and spend time with lost persons. If we don't know them, how do we love them? If we don't know them and love them, how do we have the opportunity to share Jesus to them? May we never be very good at cloistering ourselves from the outside world. May we never be good at that. May Central never be a place that puts a bubble around itself and does not know the world outside of ourselves. Many Christians, third, and church members are lazy and apathetic. Tom Rayner wrote this. I didn't. This isn't my list. Many Christians and church members are lazy and apathetic. Fourth, we are more known for what we are against than what we are for, and this hinders the gospel. I talked a little bit about this, about our online presence last week. So known for what we're against, there's nothing that draws and compels people. Five, our churches have an ineffective evangelistic strategy of you come rather than we go. That goes against the idea of what the church is, is that we gather, that we equip, that we encourage, that we love one another, that we are edified, that we hear the preaching of the word, that we worship together, right? We encourage and love one another and correct one another. We gather to do that, and then we scatter to go and be the church in the communities around us and love people. We're meant to gather to scatter, and yet we've created an ineffective and evangelistic strategy of you come rather than we go, just expecting people will show up at our doors by the grace of God sometimes. They do. Six, many church members think that evangelism is the role of the pastor and paid staff. What's so interesting about this one, ask if I have an opinion about it. Um, What's interesting about this one is, I heard one pastor say it this way. When I became a pastor, I left the ministry. When I became a pastor, I left the ministry. You know what he means by that? Ephesians chapter 4 calls overseers, calls leaders to equip the saints. For the work of the ministry. So my role is equipper. And you are the ministers. When I became a pastor to you. I left the ministry. In a sense. And yet the expectation often is. Well the pastor will do it. Hopefully people will come. And hopefully they'll hear the gospel. And yet. Look I spend all my time with Christians. I come to a church. And you know one of the the sort of. In the job description. You need to be a follower of Jesus to work here. So what that means is, and it's a good one, right? Helped grow the church and see people come to Christ. It's helpful to know Jesus personally. And so what I find is when I come here all week long, I spend the majority of my time here is that everybody's already a Christian. And so it's hard for me as the paid staff to be the great evangelist. You are commissioned to be the great evangelists. Believe me, I want to love and know my neighbors and share Jesus I truly get food and sustenance from sharing Jesus with non-believers. It's one of my favorite things. I just don't get to do it enough. Seven, church membership today is more about getting my needs met rather than reaching the lost. 
right? It's that pervasive outer culture that says the same thing, and we bring it into church, having my needs met rather than reaching the lost. Eight, church members are in a retreat mode as culture becomes more worldly and unbiblical. Nine, many church members don't really believe that Christ is the only way of salvation, right? So if he's not the only way, do we really have a message to proclaim? And so many in the church wonder that. And so if they wonder that, well, it's going to make our evangelism pretty ineffective. Number 10, our churches are no longer houses of prayer equipped to reach the lost. Every great revival in the history of the world began with a few humble people given to prayer. Number 11, churches have lost their focus on making disciples who will thus be equipped and motivated to reach the lost. That's important. It's partly my role to equip you. It's partly your role to be in the word and to know Jesus and walk with him. But I certainly feel conviction around that. And my longing is that we make disciples equipped and motivated to reach the lost. Number 12, Christians do not want to share the truth of the gospel for, they fear, for the fear they will offend others. Political correctness is too commonplace, even among Christians. 13, most churches have unregenerate members who have not received Christ themselves. A few weeks ago, we talked about regeneration. 14, our churches have too many activities. They are too busy to do the things that really matter. See, if you've got life group on Monday and women's group on Tuesday and Christians only knitting club on Wednesdays and, um, right, and and sporting activities that are only from your church community on Fridays. And then on Saturdays, right, you meet with your mentor and you you mentor someone else, right? Those are all good things. But before you know it, our schedule is seven days a week, fellow believers, and we're too busy to do things that really matter. So I'm going to conclude again with someone else's words. When it's really biting, I like to read somebody else. Have you noticed that? But I am reading it. I think Spurgeon was right on when he said this about doing God's will. Some of you good people who do nothing except go to public meetings and Bible readings and prophetic conferences and other forms of spiritual dissipation or the squandering of energy would be a good deal better Christians if you would look after the poor and needy around you, if you would just tuck up your sleeves for work and go and tell the gospel to dying men. You would find your spiritual health mightily restored for very much of the sickness of Christians comes through their having nothing to do. All feeding and no working makes men spiritually dyspeptics, irritable and depressed. Be idle, careless, with nothing to live for, nothing to care for, no sinner to pray for, no backslider to lead back to the cross, no trembler to encourage, no little child to tell of a savior, no gray-headed man to enlighten in the things of God, no object in fact to live for. And who wonders if you begin to groan and to murmur and to look within until you are ready to die of despair? Let us have practical Christianity. My question to you this morning is the same question I have for myself. Will we be partakers of the greater food? Will we be partakers of the food that truly sustains the will of God and what he's called us all to? Will we go? Will we share it? Will we live it? Will we always have our eyes on the higher shelf and not just be looking here? May we do that. For we will find that God is most glorified in our lives as we live that way. But our greatest joy, our greatest satisfaction will be when we drink of that water and eat of that food. I promise you that. Let's pray together and respond with a song. Lord Jesus, thank you so much. 
Lord, I thank you so much that you sent the gospel to me, that I could hear it. Lord God, I thank you that you brought the gospel to so many here, that we could hear it. Lord, may we not miss that in the great reward, in the great prize, that we would not miss the great mission, that this is something to share. This is something that cannot be contained as a woman just first hears the message. She's got to go proclaim the message. It's all that makes sense to her, Lord. And I confess that in my heart of hearts, that has not been all that makes sense to me. I have been so satisfied to keep the treasure of the gospel to myself. I confess that, Lord. I thank you for your grace in that, that you have loved me and fed into me despite my lack of proclamation of this great gospel. So Lord, I pray that if there's any guilt in the room this morning, it's only the kind of good guilt that people recognize they're forgiven for and that just motivates us by your spirit and by the gospel to go and proclaim this, that it leads us to action, it leads us to steps forward. Lord, with Easter approaching, may we be people who just love to proclaim the good news that in essence Easter proclaims. You are risen. You are savior of the world. You have paid the penalty for sins. You rose again. You've defeated sin. You've defeated death. And you reign. Lord, we long to proclaim that message. Would you give us opportunity? Would you give us boldness? Would you give us sensitivity to your spirit? And Lord, would you send us to the ends of the earth and to every sphere of influence we could possibly have in Chilliwack? I pray it all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.